Welcome, everybody, to the Good Data Podcast. We have a great show for you today. Nabil Mahmoud is our guest. I got unexpectedly lucky when Nabil came to our studio. He just happened to be in the building, and I was able to snag him for an interview despite the fact that he had never heard of me. And he was great. And Nabil is a strategic CIO, which often means that he takes companies and turns them around into profitability. He serves on multiple boards and is an advisor to CIOs and CEOs across a number of different industries, including banking, tech, manufacturing. Nabil has worked in the global tech business for 18 plus years. He's been through mergers, acquisitions, global expansion, creating new business models, tech innovation. He's just a leader and a motivator. He's managed big data, cloud, like ERP, IoT, mobility, data centers, all the technology from the grid to the chip. He's just an all-around interesting guy. We had the kind of very focused, engaged conversation that just makes this whole thing worth doing. Let's go. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. Thank you yeah. for having me. Thank you so much for sitting down and talking with me. This is, uh, you know, it's it's kind of an honor to <laughs> get people that I haven't met before in the podcast to, to sit and actually go through something new. So the great thing about some of the podcasts that I've recorded so far is they're very technical, very focused on specific tech issues. But then getting somebody in to talk about something outside of that is fantastic too. Uh, we've always talked with entrepreneurs and we talk a little bit about management and your background is in management. So I, I just wonder how did you get into that field of actually being talking to the C-level and uh, being in that exec suite? So, I mean, at times, you know, when I look at look back at it, it's more of a luck of a draw, right? <laughs> so in college, I grew up being an athlete and, you know, for me, everything is very structured. It's binary. I, I call myself for my life to be ones and zeros. There's yes or no. There's no maybe. Mm-hmm. So having that sort of a personality kind of, you know, led me into more of a management role and being very decisive and, you know, throughout my career and kind of leveraging on the ability to to understand and look at things from a different perspective. Nothing is in a box. I'm kind of like, you know, what's outside the box sort of a person and, you know, taking a look at it from a different perspective. I mean, every I, I, I try to look at things from a very different perspective. I mean, everything has got a different story to tell in a way. But was that something that you made a decision to go ahead with a product or not go ahead? Is it to hire somebody, not hire somebody? I mean, it's, is it just everything like information paralysis that can happen? So how do you avoid getting too much information and getting stuck in it? All right. So I, it's all about analytics, right? So you, too much information at times is pro- probably bad. I would kind of associate that with golf swing. I mean, the, the more you think, the more you stink sort of an approach. Right. So just the right amount of information is actually needed for me to make a decision. You know, I, I like to evaluate things, you know, people, personality, and so on and so forth. But there's also that gut feel, right, that, that plays a significant part in deciding if you're going to move forward with something or not or hire someone for that matter or not. 
Mm-hmm. It's it's there. There's a lot of aspects to it, like people, personalities, uh, you know, technology itself. I mean, data points and whatnot. So yeah, I might start with a lot of information, but uh, you know, I, I I start narrowing it down fairly quickly. So you said you told me before we started that you had worked on turning around companies, correct? And that's not always the easiest thing to do because they have a lot of bad habits going in. And you have to find some way to cut through it and make a change. So first of all, how do you decide what companies to work on that turnaround and which to say no to? Well, you know, the, it's, it's, I look for the underdogs. Uh, I look for the small, medium companies under $100 million, really. Mm-hmm. Or that's who I like to work with. Uh, and the reason for that is that they're, they're, they're willing to work with you. I mean, they, they have bad habits, but they're willing to learn. Um, mm-hmm. and, and especially, you know, if the, the senior management wants to take the organization to the next level. All of it goes back to the willingness to change. Uh, if they're not willing to change, it's not really worth spending the time and effort. Uh, but if they're willing to change, yes. Mm. And typically organizations you know, that I'm engaged with, they come to me versus me seeking them out. Mm-hmm. And, and that kind of just uh, validates the fact that they're in, in, in need of dire help. Right. And it makes you know, a working relationship very healthy. So I would think it would be uncomfortable. <laughs> to go in and, and make changes. So to me, a lot of that has to do with the soft skills. Correct. And would you mind talking about that a little bit? Just just what specific skills, what kind of working with people and personalities you've realized are most important for you? So one of the things that I learned early part of my career was, and, and you know, those that's the lesson that's learned from being in the School of Hard Knocks is you've got to be willing to listen to people as well and understand where they're coming from and uh, you know, portray a persona that you are with them, you are for them, and, and you want to work through them. Yet at the end, end of the day, you have uh, a strategy that you need to execute, and you, know, you, you basically want to have them on board. I mean, in a way, I kind of sound like uh, a politician, right? <laughs> but uh, that's the nature of the beast. I mean, you have to be able to convince people, and, and, and you need to be able to create a team environment. Well, so there's there's not just the team environment, but there's also uh, making changes on, you know, you, you said that your background is in tech. Correct. So making some of those technical decisions is also important. So do you see a trend of mistakes that companies make in their technology sector that maybe you've, you've been able to cut through and, and help with? Or is that not really the, the point of... Oh, uh, that's, that's actually a great, great question, right? So um, in, in the tech industry, the cool thing is that we create a lot of buzzwords. We create a lot of hype and people just start to follow it. Mm-hmm. You know, today we need cloud. We need, uh, you know, blockchain computing. Uh, we need big data. Uh, you know, I, I kind of oversimplify it for a lot of these people that at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter if it's blockchain computing or big data or artificial intelligence. Uh, it's really data. Right? right. Uh, I mean, artificial intelligence for me actually has existed since the 1950. Right? I mean, right. it's, it's nothing really new. I mean, we've, we've had it for a long time. I mean, it's what we're marketing and how are we marketing now. Uh, so the challenge with a lot of these companies is that they actually get on this bandwagon and um, they start to disrupt their business because they don't really have a subject matter expert and or mm-hmm. a leader that can help them uh, if it's really needed for them or not. And if it's needed for them, what's the, the proper development or deployment strategy? So they waste a lot of time, effort, and money and, uh, you know, create uh, a disruption within the organization uh, where 
the remainder of the people in the company want to be part of it, but they don't know what they're going to do with it or what's the value right. add for it or how can they be a part of it. Right. So in my capacity as a concierge CXO, when I go into these uh, businesses, I, I kind of start digesting uh, and evaluating the need of it and if it's really something that needs to be deployed or if we need to actually just terminate the project. Right. That's interesting in terms of uh, sort of the, the cognitive biases that, mm-hmm. you know, people have a bias to action and people have a fear of missing out. And then people have a, a bias towards continuing what's happening rather than ending something because uh, I forget what that one's called, but, uh, you know, loss aversion. That, mm-hmm. you know, if you've started something, then it's a loss to get rid of it. Whereas Correct. if you've never started it, then you, you have less of an aversion to not doing it. So, I wonder, <laughs> you know, that to me signals that you have a very strong understanding of, of your own personal psychology to not get caught up in those kind of traps. Is that something that you've worked on to, to not have some of those biases? Uh, well, you know, I, it's, it's, it's life lessons really. Yeah. Um, and, and I believe you've got to learn from your mistakes uh, and, uh, you know, put your emotions aside. Right. Um, people get attached to things very, very quickly. Uh, and I've, I don't know if it's actually just the DNA, the, the, the fact that I've actually traveled the world or, you know, not right. have to worry about taking my belongings with me anytime I move. It's probably just come natural to me, you know, mm-hmm. not to emotionally get attached to anything you know, because we're all, we're going to leave all of it behind. Right. So I believe it just came natural. Well, also you're in, in a unique position where you're a concierge CXO. So you, you come in and as needed, you're doing work to make a company better. But you didn't come in with the baggage that the company already had. So you can make those decisions without feeling as though you're stuck continuing Correct. what you're already doing. Yeah. You come in with fresh eyes. And so you have this, you know, Warren Buffett is somewhat notorious for having a laser focus on, okay, here's disinterest. It's, mm-hmm. you know, being disinterested in that kind of emotional element. And that's, that can be a superpower, <laughs> you know, <laughs> the, this ability to, uh, to not get caught up in some of that stuff. And I wonder in terms of cutting through some of those personality issues, getting to a point where you are not worried about offending someone, uh, but yet don't offend them. <laughs> that, that's a real skill. Are there any, can you think of something, you, you were talking about cyber security recently, and that's something that uh, a lot of people have trouble with. And it's it's almost like there's a, there's a cognitive dissonance where changing passwords and getting proper passwords and getting security, physical security, network security, internet security to a level that it needs to be is actually changing people. It's not just changing the systems, it's, it's changing mindsets. So that's a roundabout segue to, to getting back into, to getting into cybersecurity and thinking about what are the kind of key programmatic thought changes that need to happen within the industry to get cybersecurity to where it needs to be. So it's, it's, it's a multifold question. Yeah, so there's a lot all, there, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so let's, let's start with us as as human beings and individuals, we are creature of habits. We do the same thing over and over again. Uh, you know, when I go and you know speak at conferences, or um, 
you know, do business analysis for companies or, you know, even, you know, in boardrooms, one of the things that I've always noticed and it's kind of baffled my mind is that everybody tries to go sit in the same spot that they sat in the last meeting. Right. Right. So we, we, we follow patterns. Right? We do the same thing over and over again. Um, and that's kind of carried over into how our passwords are as well right. for, for a lot of people. I mean, it's your pet's name, your kid's name, you know, a combination of the last four of social, first three of your social, date of birth, so on and so forth. So right. they, people in general believe, uh, and it, you know, again, that's my take on it, is that it's a necessarily evil, that you have to have a password. Well, why do you have to have a password? And if you're going to have a password, I mean, why can't it be oversimplified and uh, – you know, why can't we have a password as password one, two, three? Right. And I've, I've seen that. I mean, um, you know, I've seen people, um, you know, using the ATM cards and it's their date of birth is their PIN code. Right, right. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, it's kind of scary. But I also believe that actually us being technologists and being in the, indus- in, in the industry have actually put these people into that position. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason for that is that there's a lot of uh, lack of education, a lack of understanding and people just buy everything, right? I mean, it's easy to sell to humankind. Right. So having said that, that creates a fear factor for me, I mean, on a daily basis, that uh, you've got invasion of privacy as a concern. People put everything on social media, and, and there's a lot of good technology in the back. And I mean, we talk about artificial intelligence, for instance, being one, data mining, big data. Uh, and And we do not think through any of that. We put all of our information out there for for anybody and everybody to see. And if you look at it, all of it is actually in patterns as well, right? right? You take vacations at a certain time of the year, go out uh, in the evenings at bars with certain type of people at certain times. I mean, it's it's all patterns, right? So we're leaving these digital footprints behind. One thing that I think is funny is that, you know, social media... A lot of times people use their dog's name or their child's name in their password. And then that's littered all over your Facebook profile. Exactly. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like you haven't thought about that connection Correct. between those two. But anybody who's doing that social engineering, it's one of the first places they're going to look. Exactly. And uh, all of that data is available. Yeah. To think in terms of the social engineering component, uh, is that something that you almost put yourself in that hacker point of view to, to figure out how to infiltrate and then how to guard against it? Yes. I mean, I, I, and I actually position it more to the executives, you know, that they, they, uh, they, they are the ones that need to be actually more concerned about it. Right. Uh, because well, they're they have also a lot the worst. More to lose. Exactly. They're right. the worst. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I've uh, uh, seen instances, uh, I've, you know, been with some of these executives globally where their password for the iPhone is one, two, three, four. Right. So if you guys have that, you know, make sure to change it. <laughs> <laughs> right. These days, it is interesting that there's more of a move towards biometrics. With the iPhone X, it does a face a scan. facial, yeah. And there is a higher level of security possibly, but there's also a higher level of ability to technologically game that system mm-hmm. to make some sort of a, a light array or something that, that mimics the face. And, and once that technological barrier is overcome, it ceases to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's one of the dangers of biometrics. And... I worry about that personally. Yeah. That you know now now we're moving from a password world where the the only way to hack that password if it's done correctly is to get somehow get in the mind of the person who you're trying to 
get to. Correct. Whereas now biometrics cut off somebody's thumb and suddenly you have access to everything. Mm -hmm. Where do you see the future of that security coming from? Well, I think there's going to be multi-factor authentication that's going to have to come into play. Mm-hmm. But then, I mean, you know, from, from a consumer's perspective, I, I don't see that in the very near future. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe everybody will have a chip uh, that authenticates. Yeah. Uh, and I know there's a couple of companies out in uh, in New York that are kind of looking into it or have done something around that, you know, but more around the lines of artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. But I've also been reading, you know, that there 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 is a vision out there that we're going to have a blue um uh, a blue chip of some sort in mm-hmm. in our body that's going to be uh, <laughs> uh, you know the second layer of uh, right. authenticating your access to systems. That would be interesting. It's a yeah. little scary. I, I surely do not want that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's like uh, uh, <laughs> uh, that. That's kind of like that movie Repo Man in a way. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Suddenly, your your body becomes your password, and then your body is worth something, exactly. which is a little yeah. bit disturbing too. Uh, you know, I just was reading that Google is now uh, putting out hardware security keys, sort of similar to RSA, so that there's that two-factor authentication through Google, yeah. which is interesting. But the, the question I'm going to ask, uh, how much do you trust Google? That's the problem. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, you know, that's one of the opportunities of blockchain is mm-hmm. maybe you can get rid of that third party and have a, a more distributed trust factor. Do you see that in intersecting the InfoSec world? I do. I think blockchain computing is going to significantly change how we do things over the next, you know, five to ten years. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I wish it was a lot sooner. Right. Uh, but it's it's going to take a little bit of time. Um, you know, I, I I believe the challenge with blockchain computing has been that it's not been positioned correctly. You know, for years and years, people thought that Bitcoin was blockchain computing. Right, right. Which, which is kind of silly. I mean, you know, I even go at uh, the conferences today and uh, a lot of people think that's the same thing. Right. Uh, but it's not. And it just wasn't marketed correctly. Right. Uh, I believe now we're getting to a point that there is a little bit more understanding about what blockchain is, uh, you know, what Ethereum or, you know, Bitcoin really mean. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's creating a, a little bit of a concern in the data center marketplace as well as to what's going to mean for the folks that are involved in, you know, colo wholesale and and cloud in particular. Yeah. But that transformation is needed uh, right. sooner than later. So to talk about that a little bit, uh, Bitcoin is really just doing one algorithm. It is solving hashes based on a single algorithm. But Ethereum is actually there's a Ethereum virtual machine that can run arbitrary code based on that blockchain that is is distributed computing. And that allows things like smart contracts mm-hmm. and the ability to uh, not release money or, or somehow create a, a contractual basis that doesn't have a, a third-party arbiter. Correct. Right. And so that's the power of Ethereum. And it's very important. That's why so many different new coins are based on Ethereum mm-hmm. on that technology. You know, Ethereum in some ways is the incumbent on that. Do you know of any other uh, kind of next level players on that? I, I haven't really come across or seen or heard of any uh, yeah. at the moment, uh, but I'm pretty sure, you know, over the next few years, some, some, someone else is going to pop up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, that's kind of exciting. Yeah. It's, it's a crazy world too because – Right now, we're still in the infancy of that Ethereum virtual machine, mm-hmm. where that still 
computationally is, is very expensive. Like if you were to if you were to somehow hack together a way to run Windows on that, it would cost you millions of dollars to run a second yeah. because of of how that's not you know it's it's not. I don't even know if it's Turing complete and able to run any type of system, but in terms of the actual compute that's happening, there's a lot of backbone to that to make it work. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if in the future there's going to be more utility to that. And I that's something that excites me. You know, yeah. just to get off topic a little bit, I, I think that. Um, Using I, I believe you're going to craft a term digital utility as we move forward. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think that would be great if, if uh, we can move the cloud into something where there is no Amazon. Yeah. That's, that's very doable. Mm -hmm, absolutely. We have to take a break. We'll be back in just a second with Nabil Mahmoud. Today's episode is brought to you by Greenlane Design. GreenLane is a full-stack design-bid-build company focusing on data centers. They've developed projects from BOD to finish turnkey build for many different types of companies, including co-location, high-density, and enterprise. If you would like to get a free assessment, go to GreenLaneDesign.com, click on Contact, and mention the podcast. And we're back. You said that you're working in um, manufacturing. Correct. And there is some technology associated with uh, RFID and scanning, and, and that all has to do with blockchain. Is that something that you're interested in? Or? Absolutely. It's something yeah. that we're looking into, uh, not so, something that's actually on the radar right now. I believe the, one of the, the key initiatives that we have is machine learning. Right. And uh, I mean, we've cut down roughly in the 18 to 20% of our labor costs because of machine learning. Wow. Uh, and, and of course, the, the data integrity and accuracy. Uh, you know, before we were uh, kind of sort of like a day behind uh, as to what the real production numbers might be. Mm -hmm. uh, but now we're able to capture that information on a real time basis. Huh. Um, and also, you know, the way I look at it is that before I, I was running two shifts of six, 12, you know, you know, 16 hours, uh, and then I have to worry about people getting hurt on the job, um, right. you know, somebody calling in sick, affecting the production cycle uh, with machine learning and a lot of automation that we have actually done. Uh, we are not capable of running 24-7, 365. Wow. And I don't have to worry about, uh, um, you know, pay increases. Right. You know, uh, in California in particular, we're looking at, uh, what, almost $15 in the next couple of years right. as minimum wage. Right. Uh, which is one number, and then you've got to add another 25 to 30% on top of that number that the employer has to pay for, you know, benefits, uh, insurances, and right. taxes, and so on and so forth. So that $15 employee really now is almost a 20-buck employee for me. So that's why we've got a key initiative of actually machine learning and automation. So automation specifically, you're talking about actually uh, using machine learning to program some sort of automated, like uh, I'll say a robot, uh, to um, complete a function that otherwise would be kind of human necessary. But the, the technology around that has improved so much where the, the robot can over time improve the task because of Correct. that machine learning. And, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Um, I mean, you know, with machine learning, there's an introduction of robotics, right? Um, and then there's also further enhancements in it to, to, to be more accurate. Mm -hmm. So 
Um, I'll, I'll give you an example uh, that um, in this particular scenario, uh, if we were uh, producing X amount of quantity as a human, uh, the robot can actually do X plus 10 in a lesser amount of time. Wow. Because um, there's less human intervention. Right. Is So I was reading recently that uh, Amazon has uh, sort of machine learning robots that are on their uh, shipping side mm-hmm. and that each each time they build a new robot, they actually have to teach that specific robot how to do things. Correct. That you can't necessarily take that learning and take it from one robot to the next and, and just iterate that way. You have to work that one through the process of learning almost like it's a person. Yeah. Is that accurate? Yeah, it's fairly accurate. That's crazy. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's still in the infancy stage. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, over a period of time, um, I believe it will be just like migrating data from one laptop to another right. or from one infrastructure to another. But almost from just like a, a mental image of, of having these things go to school yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, start as infants who know nothing and then, and then each one has to learn in its own way. It, it just seems like such a uh, cognitive shift for me to, yeah. <laughs> to start thinking about robots as uh, real workers. Mm-hmm. Um, so is that something, I mean, do you, do you worry about the jobs that might be moving to automation? Do you think that there's going to be additional jobs that come up? I mean, you know, trucking looks like it might uh, turn into a automated, you know, with, with driverless trucks. Is that something that you think about the job market? Is it not something that worries you too much? Uh, yes, I do think about it. I don't think it worries me too much. I believe, you know, as, as we are getting away from the, the labor aspect, uh, there's other opportunities that are being created. I also believe that we, as a society, need to work more on uh, vocational schools. You know, we need to produce, uh, you know, more subject matter experts. Right. Uh, to to kind of oversimplify it is, uh, you know, I don't see a goldsmith anymore, really. Right. You know, I mean, people don't go to school for trade. Um, they, they have uh, a bunch of degrees that don't really mean anything. Right. I mean... Uh, and, and then we keep issuing these, uh, you know, liberal degrees. I mean, I don't necessarily want to get into that, but right, right. Um, I, I believe we need to work more, 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 more trade schools. I mean, let's, right. let's produce people that are CCIEs. Let's produce people that have an interest in cybersecurity, cyber warfare, cyber threats. Let's produce people that have an interest in robotics or automation. And they don't need a college degree uh, for six years to, you know, you know, work on something. Right. I mean, I, I believe we can, you know, have platforms that are six months to a year to at least get them started. Right. I mean, maybe it's the right thing for them. Maybe it's not, but it's it's better than being jobless. Right. <laughs> well, you know, having, you know, I've worked a lot with programmers over time and uh, there are a number who are self-taught that mm-hmm. have, that are fantastic at their jobs and never took one computer science or programming class in their entire lives. And the the background to that is incredible. That there's so much wonderful learning out there. Like I was just talking about uh, learning Python, the language. And there's just free classes out there online that are fantastic. Maybe it's because I have the background, but, you know. Well, I think it's it's not just that. I think there is a level of interest as well, right? Right. Um, And and where does that come from? It's from exposure. Yeah. So we we need to expose our society to to that skill set in education. Right. And it's... It's this amazing time where we have the internet, which can democratize uh, and and allow more people to get some of that learning, but also 
there's still that kind of uh, element in a lot of jobs where even if you have that self-learning, you still can't get the job because they want to see that degree. Exactly. And that's, I, so I, would love I think to see you know uh, anybody and everybody that's out there that doesn't have a degree and has that level of experience, you know, feel free to reach out to me. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, you know the the sort of uh, the automation of hiring. Yeah. Um, is I think a real problem personally mm-hmm. that you know you go to a job board and you put in fifty different credentials and maybe you get the job if they if they need fifty one then maybe you don't get the job. Correct. Uh, and the people that are actually in that recruitment process, they have no idea what uh, right. what what the organization really needs. Right. Uh, so when I go and, and 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 play the concierge CXO role in a lot of cases and have these discussions with HR people, they don't necessarily like me a lot. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, because they don't really have the understanding of what's needed. So how do you go through the hiring process? I I, I think it's one of the most important processes and most undervalued processes personally to actually get good people and use a non-standard process to do that. So do you have any tricks of the trade that really work for you? Yeah. So, I mean, when you're, okay, so I mean, my engagements really are at the executive level, like director level or higher is what I actually, you know, engage with. Uh, So I I look at a few things. Uh, I mean, of course, I don't want a CV that's 10 pages long. I, I really could care less. Uh, I want you to put bullet points in what you've been able to accomplish in whatever capacity. I mean, if you're a finance person, give me real, real information. I could care less if you've got a certification in JD Edwards or PeopleSoft or, you know, Oracle EBS, mm-hmm. E1, whatever the case might be. But, you know, show me what you have been able to accomplish in, in, in the financial aspect of things. Uh, as a technologist, I could care less if you've got a, uh, a degree from Stanford or Yale. Uh, or, you know, you, you are the guru for C++, right? right? Give me the level of intellect uh, and a good understanding because we can hire other people that are subject matter experts. And a writing skill, for sure. I, I, I believe that uh, translates into intellect and communication style. So the less you say, uh, it's typically better, in my opinion, uh, but it needs to be to the point and uh, it needs to be able to get to open doors for one, right? Um, I typically prefer like a two-page CV, you know, with key highlights, uh, not necessarily, you know, what you uh, did in college uh, or what degree do you have or, you know, how many certifications you have on your resume. I like to focus on the writing style, right? So you're looking for a cover letter? Uh, not necessarily a cover letter. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm looking for your accomplishments. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what have you been able to accomplish? Mm. Um, you know, and how professional your communication style is because anything can be taught to anyone. Right. right? As long as you're willing to learn. But it's, right. it's how you communicate. Uh, so if you've got a good communication style, it kind of opens the door for, for, for you to come and talk to me. Can I drill down a little bit into communication style? So are you looking for someone who conveys their thoughts particularly clearly, or are you looking for someone who can take direction and communicate in a listening sort of way, or both? It's a combination of both. So, I mean, if you can take the, if you can take the direction and communicate, that means that you can write well and communicate your thoughts. Right, right. So, and you're, you're saying that brevity and keeping it a little bit more to the point is more important to you than 
getting flowery language or, or something like that that exactly. you're really looking for. Yeah. I mean, you know, I kind of looked at some of the LinkedIn profiles after we get these resumes and, uh, you know, <laughs> it's kind of interesting uh, how people exaggerate. Right. So, you know, let's let's be real. Right. Um, I, I believe that's what opens the doors. Right. And, uh, you know, the next step in the process really is developing that personal relationship and understanding and, uh, you know, ensuring that, you uh, um, the parties that we're, you know, potentially going to hire are are are, are willing and and able to understand, and, and and there is a good communication between both of us. Right. Uh, and if that, uh, you know, works in the first meeting, uh, then you know, I I, I believe uh, that individual is the right person for us. Right. Uh, then I also have a rule. I mean, if I can carry the conversation for more than thirty-five minutes, then with that person or that person has my interest for 35 minutes that that, that that's the right individual i don't know how i came up with a 35 minute number mm-hmm. but over my over my entire career uh, less than 30 minutes uh i i, I lose interest huh. uh 35 minutes is a good cutoff for me <laughs> <laughs> so <Wow>. if you ever <laughs> if any anybody's listening and uh, they do get my 35 minutes you've you've got a lot of interest Wow. Okay. <laughs> I'll go set my watch. Um, well, I guess, you know, maybe that's a cue. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, I, I, I know that we're taking your time, but um, I, you know, so far I feel like I've, you know, learned a lot about management and uh, I, I'd like to kind of um, parlay that into, you know, what you're doing now and what you're interested in in your current uh, world. Uh, so, I mean, I, I I like constant stimulation, right? I'm you know kind of like an entrepreneur. I'm not necessarily kind of like an entrepreneur. I'm an entrepreneur at heart. Uh, I like change, right. uh, and it, it's got to be continuous. So, um, and I'm always willing to learn because uh, I don't have all the answers. And I believe the one that says that has all the answers is not the person that I want to be talking to. Right. So uh, education is key, and uh, you know that education can come from a janitor. It could come from uh, the the most smartest people uh, in the world. Right. Uh, and I, I believe that uh, that's where I want to be. I want to I want to continuously learn. Um, I to your question, what's next for me, or what do I want to do, or where do I want to be? I think uh, I I I want to be the person recognized eventually. You know, when I go down. Uh, as somebody that you know made made a difference, made made you know made a change. Right. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be at the level of uh, you know Steve Jobs or Bill Gates, uh, but anything small. I mean, if I can change one person's life, I think I'll be happy. Yeah. Well, I <laughs> just you know talking with you here, I'm, I'm sure that you have. But uh, is is there uh, you know a larger sort of societal or global change that you could see affecting and that you would like to affect through the work that you do? Yeah. So, uh, you know, particularly cybersecurity, I uh, would like to create more awareness in the industry. Uh, it's something that uh, we as a society, uh, you know, as individuals and as organizations have not really paid a lot of attention to. I mean, I'll, I'll throw a blip over here. Uh, the fact of the matter that, you know, 65 to 70% of the equipment, the hardware that comes to the United States it's not actually manufactured in the U.S. Right. And all what it takes is a single line of code to self-destruct the system in 2050. So just think about that. Yeah. Right? 
Um, there's none of it's actually, you know, regulated. Uh, right. So I believe uh, there's a play for regulating, um, you know, hardware and everything being connected. And as a society, you know, we 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 want data now. We want information out of our fingertips now. And there's more and more of, you know, the growth of infrastructure, whether it be build out of data centers, well, with the computing power in your fingertips, uh, uh, a mobile device, um, all what you need to, you know, think through is that that device was potentially not manufactured in the United States, uh, and it could end up having a single line, line of code that could potentially expose you as an individual, as a business, as a country, and that system could be self-destructed. We don't know who our friends or our enemies are, so right. we need to be a lot more careful. And as a nation, I believe that we need to regulate that. We need to bring these jobs. We, you talked about jobs earlier. We need to bring manufacturing jobs, especially in the computing world, back to the United States. We need to manufacture equipment in the U.S. Also, you know, software, uh, you know, uh, applications, the application layer. We need to actually start doing more and more of that in the U.S. We need to introduce more compliance standards. We need to start regulating that. We shouldn't be able to publish any application related to finance or healthcare to the public without it going through a sequence of auditing. Right. Right. And and meeting those compliance standards. Right. Well, so uh, can I throw that to open source? So you know, being being able to uh, actually audit something is fantastic and for the public to be able to audit but you would like for it to go through a compliance audit from a from a government perspective before it gets to that point absolutely yeah, yeah okay now i mean i i i think another concern with that statement that i made earlier is that the government doesn't have enough knowledge right so they right. don't know so uh, as as a part of all of this we need to educate the government right right we um I mean, I'm not asking for creating more government jobs, but I believe we need to help the government understand what all of this means. I 100% agree. <laughs> that right now, our, our cybersecurity from a governmental perspective is too disjointed, and uh, you know that there there isn't a central authority on it, and it really feels like a problem. It uh, is absolutely. And you know, I have worked very tangentially on um, the electrical power grid and the cybersecurity around that, and that needs to be addressed because there are, you know, I mean, it's fantastic what they do, but some of the pieces that are least protected are entries in, like uh, facilities mm -hmm. systems. That uh, you know what controls the HVAC is often housed in the same data center on the same network as the actual physical in infrastructure, often not. Mm -hmm. But that's how Target got hacked. You know, th there's still problems there, and I, I think that you hit the nail on the head with uh, needing to make sure that those things are uh, correctly identified and uh, that we are 100% sure that those won't be attack vectors. Correct. I believe we need to work on the foundation yeah. more than anything. We need yeah. to think through the process, right? Uh, so I'm a big fan of technology. Yeah. You know, give me a new gadget. You know, I, I, I love it. Right. But the challenge is that we don't think through it. Right. You know, I, I believe we need to spend a little bit more time. And, you know, 
it's only it's it's only been a decade. Right. You know, iPhone didn't exist ten years ago. Right. Or I mean, <laughs> if if it actually it was in its infancy. Right. Right. Um, you know, the World Wide Web was there, but it's not what it is today. Right. Right. Um, Bitcoin was a dark it a web. It's, yeah. uh, <laughs> it's it was a white paper, right? It was a dark web uh, currency exchange. So yeah. it's the adoption in the last decade that's resulted into where we are at today. And I believe we are right at that chasm where we need to step back and think through the foundational elements and understand what is the worst thing that can happen and what would be the root cause for it and plan around it versus introducing all of this new technology and getting the buy-in of people because it's getting more and more data from everybody, right? Mm-hmm. And it needs to be protected. Right. And, and you know, da- da- data is running all the businesses now. So, um, you know, as business owners, you know, some somebody asked me, uh, should we move into cloud? I'm like, well, yeah, sure. But think about it. There's no value add, really. I mean, the only thing that you're gaining is potential latency. Right. Right. Um, it's going to cost you the same, if not more, in moving to a cloud environment. You're losing control of your data, right? Right. And uh, then there is a fear factor of, uh, you know, government accessing your information more than they need to or other people accessing more information than they need to. Amazon uh, or Microsoft is not going to give you the service level agreement if there is a disruption in service that you need. Right. So maybe it's not the right thing. Right. Now, you can partially move some of the applications into the cloud environment, uh, but, you know, it needs to be regulated. It needs mm-hmm. to be defined. It needs to be thought through. And and I believe that's what we're lacking. And, you know, that's going to create a lot bigger concern as we move forward. And, you know, mark my word, if we don't, if we don't address it now in the next 10 years, I think we are going to be a society that's going to be a definition of idiocracy. <laughs> Well, on that positive note, Nabil, thank you so much for sitting and talking to me. I really, this was a fantastic conversation, and I just, I really enjoyed talking to you. So uh, it was thank a pleasure. you very much. That's our show. I'd like to thank Nabil Mahmoud for speaking with us. You can connect with and follow Nabil at NabilMahmoud.com or on Twitter at NabilMahmoud. And thank our sponsor, Green Lane Design. Juke Deck created our music, like Literally, go to jukedeck.com and it will create music for you. Just try it. J-U-K-E-D-E-C-K.com. For good data, I'm Drew Farnsworth. We'll talk to you next time on the podcast. <laughs>